You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas, and joining me as always from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how are you doing this week? I'm doing all right. How are you doing? I'm doing good. We're jumping back into the thick of it here of the UFC schedule after a merciful weekend off. Weekend off gave me just enough time to remember all the awesome stuff going down at UFC 209 and get me all excited for it, which ideally should be how this is supposed to work. Now, wait a second. Don't shortchange this stretch that we're on now, because when you say you're excited for UFC 209, I assume that you are also excited for Vitor Belfort versus Kelvin Gastelum the following week and the week after that, the one we've all been looking forward to, Jimmy Manawa against Beast in Overtime, Corey Anderson across the pond at the O2. I like to think of it as building to a crescendo. Like, we start out with UFC 209, and it's, you know, dueling title fights. Yeah, okay, yeah, that's pretty cool. Then Vitor Belfort and Kelvin Gastelum, I mean, that's the one that keeps you up at night. Yep. Then you finish with the big finale, Jimmy Manoa, Beast in Overtime. Oh, give me chills just thinking about it. A veritable fever pitch will be reached by the time Beast in Overtime and the Paperboy. Hey, isn't Jimmy Manoa's nickname the Paperboy? Sure. Like, I, I could believe that. But you, like, realistically, you could have said three different nicknames right there. And I, if you had said them with the same confidence, I would have gone with it. Do you think they call him the Paperboy because he always delivers? That can't be it. Is it because he's constantly making news? Paperboy doesn't really make news. Do you think it's a reference to the early 90s rapper Paperboy? Maybe that was his favorite video game? That Another interesting possibility. Who yep. knows? Somebody's going to have to get Jimmy Manoa on the horn to uh, to let us know. Think a, a, if that is in fact his nickname, <laughs> and B, uh, why he's called that. So what you're saying is there's a lot of questions that oh, we could probably poster answer. Boy. Poster Boy. Poster Boy. That makes more sense. Huh. Paperboy. I, like I was really ready to believe Paperboy, I kind of like Paperboy better. Maybe we'll see what we can do. We've we've seen the co-main event podcast can fuck up a person's nickname if we put our minds to it. Oh, and we got some nickname news coming up later in the show, too. Oh boy. This is not the last nickname discussion we'll be having. Thank God. On episode 246 of the co-main event podcast. Ooh. We got music again this week from our guy Dion Rodriguez, a producer from Deltona, Florida. Thanks to him for that. If you like what you hear, you can check him out over at soundcloud.com slash dbeats7. Obviously, that's uh, beats with a Z and the number seven. Obviously. dbeats. Three rounds as usual this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast in round number one, because you can't have a draw in a damn title fight. Tyron Woodley and Stephen Thompson will do it again, brother. And in round number two, it's time, you guys. Nermy versus T. Ferg and about to determine the next guy to get passed over by Conor McGregor. And in round number three, Mark Hunt is mad that the UFC keeps making him fight guys on steroids. So now he's going to fight Alistair Overeem. So that should go fine. All that plus just saying stuff and are you fucking kidding me? But first, like we always do about this time. Let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail comes to us from Lord Ralph. Huh. So people are just giving themselves titles. He sounds like a, but it sounds like an animal king. Is Lord L Ralph, king of the mouse. Lord the Ralph mice. related to King Ralph, John Goodman film? I have no idea. Let's assume so. Is it about an animal? You're, you're going to sit there and say you haven't seen King Ralph. I don't know, even know that I've heard of it. Starring John Goodman. I'm familiar with who that is. In his goddamn heyday. Where he Wait a second, what would you consider John Goodman's heyday? Starts at King Ralph, whatever okay. year that was. <laughs> I assume that was also during his Roseanne years. Uh, and really caps off with the Big Lebowski. Through an improbable series of events, a regular American slob becomes King of England. But in King Ralph, he's not voicing an animal. It's not like about a stray dog that becomes the King of England or anything like that. Listen, you and I are going to have to have ourselves a movie night, my friend. This morning, when I was driving my daughter to work, I had to explain to her that a yes, princesses you're driving, you're driving your daughter to work. Okay, was she is she, she get that job at the coal mines? Yes. Or? Now with the with these child labor laws being pulled out, we've been able to finally. <laughs> 
Really? Sign her yeah. up down at the coal mine. Okay. Driving her to school, rather. I had to explain to her that, A, yes, princesses are real in real life. But B, we don't have princesses in our country. But they do have them in other countries, which I'm going to say she was deeply troubled by. And just going to be cruising orbits as soon as she gets home, trying to get somewhere cool. Take it up with the founding fathers, as I told her. Lord Ralph writes... Maya versus Masvidal, targeted for Nashville. Can we therefore conclude that GSP will indeed face the winner of Woodley versus Thompson? Seems clear Maya knows he's at the back of the queue. Uh, see, that's that's lordly right there, yes. calling it a queue. Uh, roll with that one, homies. Couple of different things going on here at the same time, Ben. Yeah. First of all, Jorge Masvidal versus Damian Maya booked for this UFC event in Tennessee, uh, or targeted, I guess. Uh Further proof that Jorge Masvidal would just fight who fucking ever. He doesn't give a shit. And the return, the eminent return of GSP and where he will uh, filter back into the UFC when the time comes. Yeah, I don't know if this is proof that GSP is slated for the winner of <laughs> Woodley versus Thompson. No, 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 no. You know, I feel like we're all being not so subtly tested kind of feeling out the waters to see what, what we're willing to accept GSP-wise upon his return. And while I think the winner of Woodley versus Thompson would be the most logical choice, it also seems increasingly like the least likely. Most logical, but like worst draw for GSP. I mean, that's... that's... You mean toughest draw with least return? Yeah, worst draw, like I just said. Toughest <laughs> draw with the least return. Uh, I would be astonished. If the thing that happens to George St. Pierre is that he vaults back into the thick of the welterweight title hunt, since that's the thing that drove him to near madness the first time <laughs> around, uh, when he, he walked away from the sport at the end of 2013, uh, and also because the, the like values of the fight company have changed in the time that he's been gone. Back when George St. Pierre was doing the damn thing, there was nothing more desirable you could be in the UFC but a dominant champion of your weight class. And George St. Pierre uh, did that better than anyone in the world. But now, eh, in the grand scheme of things, it kind of feels like titles don't mean as much as they used to. Wait, are you saying this title shit is a fairy tale? I'm saying that's what the UFC says, right? When they have to go talk to... Uh, Congress, yeah, congressional well. members about it. Uh, so, I mean, you're either getting George St. Pierre coming back for a series of super fights at middleweight, or you're getting him coming back for a series of super fights against guys who have been known to jump between lightweight and welterweight, right? But he's not. we're not talking about, he's probably not fighting Tyron Woodley. Not only because Tyron Woodley uh, ain't going to do no numbers, but also because... Uh, like, who knows that, that George St. Pierre's game, MMA game in 2013, could d defeat a fellow like Tyron Woodley. You mean in 2017. The, Whatever year the, it is. Come on. Right. Okay. Uh, to me, as far as what it says about what the UFC's plans are for welterweight, somebody mentioned to me on Twitter when in talking about this fight that it seems as if Demian Maia is going to have to fight every welterweight on the planet. Which I think would actually be a kind of a sweet gimmick. Kind of like, like a Mighty Mouse style sure. thing where he goes well, door to door looking for 170 pound men. I think it would be awesome if like Dana White comes out publicly and says that he, he believes that jujitsu doesn't work. And then Demian Maya has to take it upon himself to fight absolutely everybody at 170 pounds and submit them all in order to prove uh, otherwise. And here you go. You got Jorge Masvidal talking about how he's willing to bet six figures that nobody can beat him, why not go ahead and take him up on that with Demian Maia? It seems like a we're not exactly sure how all this stuff is going to play out kind of move on the UFC's part. It's starting to have a kind of an enter the dragon type feel to it. You got one guy wanting to slap down a hundred thousand bucks saying no one can beat him. You got Demian Maia out there uh trying to put up for his for his school, basically. Uh and then you got the rich billionaire Dana White uh, talking about how jujitsu doesn't work in your scenario. So I, li I like it. I like what you've laid out here. When Demian Maya and Jorge Masvidal meet in that mirrored hall, I think some shit's really going to go down. Uh, in reality, though, if Damian Maya beats Jorge Masvidal, Welterweight will be, assuming George St. Pierre doesn't vault back in, which I don't think is going to happen, 
it's going to be hard to continue to to put him off though right i mean in 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 the real world because we do this tyron woodley stephen thompson dance all over again assuming we get a a, a definitive outcome this time it's not like you're going to have dudes coming out of the woodwork at 170 that can make a better case than Damian Maya. You know what? A part of me, though, would almost weirdly like to see him continue to be passed over because he is such a fucking gentleman about it every single time it happens. I want to see that stretch to its very limit. I want to see him, in his very gentlemanly fashion, proclaim that this is all a bunch of bullshit. Because you know that there's got to be a breaking point even for Demon Maya, and I'm I'm curious where it is. Yeah, after this one, uh, you got Robbie Lawler who's been MIA for a while. You got Carlos Condit who is has an, uh, an a future that is very much unclear right now in this weight class. And, and you know, aside from those dudes, then you're starting to look at guys like Neil Magny and Masvidal uh, and Donald Cerrone. I would think Damian Maya gets by this one. Uh, it would be it's going to be hard to to keep him from the door much longer, which probably means that this is the one he will fuck around and lose somehow, uh, just because that's how things go. The next question this week uh, comes from Sean from Japan, uh, and he writes: So the UFC let Kyoji Horiguchi go and sign with Ryzen. I'll be honest, Japan probably loves heavyweights more than the U.S. and cares for flyweights even less. The best prospects for Horiguchi are an openweight tournament where round one and two are easy wins against Baruto. Whoa, hold on. (laughs) Against Baruto and a grandma in a cup of noodle costume, respectively, until he gets humiliated uh, by King Mo or Chael Sonnen or some uh, similar shit in the finale. Uh, What do you guys think? Time to scrap featherweight? Is it a, uh, a victim of... Mighty Mouse's dominance. There's a lot of shit to talk about here, so fucking do it already. I'm drunk. Sean, we can tell. We can tell you're drunk. I was wondering what was going uh, on there, and then it kind of answered itself there at the end. Yeah. just Spelled just about everything you possibly could wrong here in this, uh, including King Mo. Man, and I feel like you got you to gotta put some work in to misspell King Mo. But I feel there, the funny thing is that adds an extra E onto the end of King Mo and somehow gets... The E's and the A's in the right spot with Chael Sonnen. Well, that's just hardwired yeah. into some deep circuitry. Chael, how to spell Chael Sonnen. This is, he spells King Mo like uh, he's talking about the dude from the Three Stooges. <laughs> right. Which, hey, man, that's fine. Um, we also switch back and forth between calling Horiguchi and uh, Demetrius Johnson flyweights and featherweights there in this one. But anyway, we see what he's getting at. Uh, is it time to start getting worried Ben, about uh, this new UFC ownership group letting what feels like at least an awful lot of good fighters decamp for elsewhere because that's the feeling I get now all of the sudden after being, I felt like initially bullish about the WME IMG takeover and, uh, you know, what the possibilities might be with that ownership group now running the UFC. You see, you know, a number of light heavyweights uh, take for the hills and now Horiguchi, uh, a flyweight that I think we all saw lose to Demetrius Johnson, but also a fairly young guy that seemed like he still had a high ceiling uh, in that weight class. The, all these guys kind of disembark for, for other locales. Uh, is it time to start getting worried about what the, the overriding theory here is about the UFC roster? You know what worries me is I feel like it's a gamble that overall it won't matter uh, as far as running right. a profitable fight It seems company. like that's exactly what it is, right? Well, I guess the thing that worries me about that is I feel fear that it might be true that it won't actually matter to anybody except for those of us who are hardcore enough to be paying attention to, to know like wait a minute they let Kyoji Horiguchi go like he, he you let him get out of there on a three fight win streak like what what is that about the people who know how this stuff used to work and are going to notice when guys like that are gone whereas it seems like what the assessment that has gone on here is Okay, so we bought this star-driven sport where only a few people really matter. And if you get into a situation where, you know, a guy who is some Eastern European light heavyweight or Japanese flyweight who is clearly really good but is not under any possible scenario going to become a Conor McGregor for for that country, for us. Plus, we got to keep shelling out a bunch of money to fl- for these international goddamn flights every time we want them to fly in Vegas uh, or fight in Vegas. You know what? We don't need it. It's an expense we don't need that's not going to pay off uh, in the long run. So forget it. 
and I I don't feel like we've seen the end of this strategy yet, like where it all leads, because for one thing, you let these guys go fight somewhere else, that means they're fighting for someone else, uh, which maybe you're going to screw around one of these times and somebody else is going to figure out they can do something with this guy that you weren't uh, able to do. And also, you just kind of subtly, slowly erode the overall talent pool, and it might take a long time for us to actually see the results of that. Yeah, um, and I feel like the scenario that you just described sounds like the right one. I, I mean, just from the outside looking in, it feels like that is, in fact, what's going on uh, with the UFC. And the biggest worry for me about that is that the thing that you just described, while plausible and you know, maybe even on the surface seems to make good business sense. That's a dramatic departure from, from how the sport has run throughout its entire history. Uh, I mean, and not how the sport is run, how the UFC is run. And up to this point, up to the WME IMG purchase, like, you know, you can say what you want to about the top end of, of pay-per-view sales and, and the sport being personality driven and the, you know, the Brock Lesnar bubble and whether or not a lot of the UFC growth, uh, was kind of an illusion, but the backbone of the UFC has always been those guys. It's always been that the organization has had the best overall roster, you know, with the, you know, the possible exception of the pride days. Uh, and I feel like you start letting too many of those guys go and all of a sudden you lose a lot of the thing that drew hardcore fans to the sport to begin with. And, you know, I don't know that we should underestimate, or I don't know that the UFC should underestimate those people's willingness to go watch Nikita Krylov on an internet stream in the middle of the afternoon fighting in some Russian MMA federation, right? Because if like, just by way of example, and I'm not saying this is going to happen, but if, if uh, Nikki thrills turns around and becomes a guy that you think is in the running for best light heavyweight in the world. And he's marooned over there uh, in Russia fighting guys in the middle of the afternoon. Uh, like that's, that's not good for you. If your brand is to be the dominant MMA promotion in the world. Well, see this though, feels like where you intersect with the old UFC strategy on some things, which is to say, if you are hardcore enough that you will watch Nikki thrills on an internet stream, where a lady in a spider costume is dangling from the damn ceiling. We got you anyway, if we're the UFC. Yeah, maybe. And I I know that that's probably the mindset, but I also think that it's a slippery slope. It is. Well, and I think, like, more importantly, I think it does just signal a general philosophy change, which, like you said, like, the idea that, hey, we don't necessarily need to scour the earth and find the best fighters, throw them against each other, and see who comes out on top. That's maybe what we thought this business was or what this business was sold as being about. But now that we look at the numbers and the graphs about where all the money's coming from and who's doing all the generating of it, that's not really what it is. And I guess I worry that it is a shift toward a company that is just strictly looking to hit home runs. Uh, Just looking for Conor McGregor and Ronda Rousey over and over again and saying all the rest of it, you know, if you get too expensive at all and you're not going to be one of those people, fine, go ahead, fight fight in St. Petersburg for all we care. Uh, and the old UFC used to be content to hit a few more singles and doubles, I think, uh, and you know, kind of realize that there, there are different kind of fighters to fill different kind of niches. You need somebody to, to be fighting at a, at a fight night on Saturday night in goddamn Albany, and you know, it can't all be pay-per-view stars. Next question this week comes to us from Tim Board, who writes, Dudes, with all the talk of a non-existent women's featherweight class, how jacked are you for Bellator 174 Friday? Refresher. See, I'm glad that he gives us a refresher. Yeah, here. Tim Board knows up. Refresher. Julia Budd will trade hands with Marluz Kunin uh, to become the promotion's inaugural featherweight champion. Uh, Budd's only losses are to Amanda Nunes and Ronda Rousey. Uh, Conan... How do we say Marlos Kunin's name? Kunin? Did I get it right the first time? I think you got Kunin? it right just now when you asked how we spell Marlos Kunin's name. Kunin's name, yeah. It's been a while since we've heard from her, or at least since I have. Yes. Uh, Kunin, despite two losses to Cyborg and a recent upset loss, is indubitably a legend. I'm personally a hell of a lot more jacked about this fight than I ever was for Holm versus Durandamy, though I suspect Scott Coker has the same issue as the UFC for a few contenders. Uh, for few contenders. Bellator appears to have some prospects, but no featherweight Anastasia Yankovas, if you know what I'm saying. 
Okay. Do you know what he's saying? I'm not sure. Anastasia Yankova is the, uh, what is she, uh, a bantamweight, but she's over in Bellator, uh, easy on the eyes, as, and therefore okay. uh, popular. Now I remember with that, that whole situation. You can't get in and out of a uh, Bellator promo video without seeing Anastasia Yankova on there somewhere. Okay. Despite the fact that I couldn't tell you one person that she's fought. Uh, so this this uh, Marlos Kunin Julia Bud fight they were supposed to do this like last year, right? Yeah, uh, Bellator one fifty five, but Bud got injured and got replaced by Alexis Dufresne, I believe is who it was. Uh, and then she messed around and beat Marlos Kunin by uh, uh, arm triangle uh, in the first round. But missed weight for that. Right, it was a non-title fight. Yes, this is, this is why this Catch is the weight, inaugural. Pounds. Right, and if you're, but it seems weird, right? Because it seems from the outside like, oh, the UFC just announced a women's featherweight fight. Here we go. We'll we'll do one too. We'll we can create a belt. We got some in the closet. We'll go yank one out. We'll create a new, we'll create this division too, and we'll have one. Uh, and really, you could have beat them to the punch here if everything had gone okay. But you still decided like. Yeah, we're going to have Marlos Kuhn in, in that 145-pound title bout. We don't really care that much if she loses. Uh, she's still going to end up in that fight. And, I get, you know, when re- I believe uh, Tim Board refers to her as indubitably a legend here. I mean, she's definitely I, one of the people I talked to for that uh, hook-and-shoot story I did last week referred to her, her as a grandmother of women's MMA, which I'm sure she'd be very thrilled <laughs> oh, wow. uh, to hear her help. So, but it was meant positively. You know, she's been she's been in this a long time, uh, has built a good name for herself, um, really remarkably nice person, too, uh, if you ever talk to her. And so her seeing, seeing her go up against Julia Budd here, it is one of those fights where I feel like, oh, that's interesting. That That is enough to get my attention for a Bellator Friday night show. And then also, what do you do after that? I have no idea. And maybe that underscores the problem with the women's featherweight division at large. Uh, if you, you know, back when Ronda Rousey first came into the UFC, it felt a little bit like the UFC was able to quickly corner the market on women's bantamweights. It doesn't feel like that's going to be able to be the case just because there are a number of different promotions all currently fielding high, fairly high profile women's featherweight divisions. So, you know, you got Bellator doing it. Uh, you got Invicta doing it. Um, although obviously UFC and Invicta appear to have some kind of talent sharing deal. Uh, but at the same time, like if you're talking about a women's 145-pound weight class that isn't necessarily the deepest thing to begin with, and now suddenly you're spreading it out over a couple of different promotions, uh, it does feel like you might be hurting for depth in all areas, not just the UFC, which appears to have you know, had this title fight without much thought about what comes next. So um, that's going to be one of the interesting things to track as far as I'm concerned is is whether any of these promotions are going to have enough uh, talent to kind of make the whole thing work. Yeah. I, I still, though, there's only one cyborg out there, and that's right now the only 145-pound women's fighter that people want to see. And she's still going to do big numbers kind of whoever she fights from what we've seen. Like, it's enough of a a wrecking ball is going to destroy something appeal that, at least for a while, you can keep putting her in there against kind of whoever you can find, and there will be enough curiosity for people to watch. Last question this week comes to us from uh, Kenny from Green Bay, who all he does is send in the link to the Diego Sanchez Instagram page, where Diego Sanchez has announced that his new nickname is Lionheart. And then he writes, Kenny from Green Bay writes, are you fucking kidding me? Please discuss, spelled P-L-S-D-Z-G-U-Z-Z, and then thanks for the lols. Yeah, I want to point out here the only full word correctly spelled out here is the yeah is it possible well i mean lols right well that's not a word but all right uh i'm just saying that would be a hard one to is miss it, on is it possible somebody just sat on their phone and this is a butt tweet yeah then the result is just you know it's like you put enough monkeys in a room with typewriters they'll eventually come up with shakespeare you sit on your phone enough eventually you're going to send an email to the co-main event podcast with a link to diego sanchez's instagram and this semi-nonsensical message at the bottom 
still made the show. <laughs> Diego, we, Kudos we, to Kenny from Green Bay. We got to put some kind of cap on the number of nicknames a dude like Diego Sanchez is allowed to give himself, yeah, I right? Think we passed it like two nicknames ago. Yeah, we, we, the dream, was that where we reached our breaking point? Well, and then he went back to the nightmare, right? Right, yes. And now, now he's Lionheart. leaving the nightmare for, for Lionheart. And I guess if you're going to say something positive about Lionheart, it seems applicable yes. to Diego Sanchez. Yes. Also, wasn't it a Jean-Claude Van Damme movie? Yes, it was. So it's firing on a couple of different cylinders. No, but no, I have to put my foot down on this. You can't do this. You can't, you can't expect people to just keep adjusting their, their perceptions of like all the stuff that goes with the nickname. You can't just be like, Oh, guess what? Today I'm, uh, I'm Smelly Pete. That's my name now. And then next week you're going to be, you know, the, the world eater or something. You just, we're not going to go along with this. We're, you're the nightmare. That's it. You've lost your nickname privileges. Therefore we resort back to your first nickname. No further discussion is permitted on the matter. You're the nightmare. You know, frankly, at this point, Diego, you should be glad we even let you have a nickname. Nickname is a privilege, not a right. Do not abuse it. I think this also violates the long-standing co-main event podcast rule against giving yourself a nickname. Well, I I mean, just as... We're going to start making a list of all the people we suspect are guilty of that. I mean, if we're going to take Diego Sanchez to nickname court here, I think we got to compile the most compelling case so we can. Did you happen to like look at the the comments on this this Instagram? I did not. I just looked at the uh, the 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 art that makes. I mean, clearly Diego Sanchez has put some thought into this because he's got what looks like the album cover of like one of those lesser known Cypress Hill albums <laughs> to announce his name as the Lionheart. It says Lionheart at the top. Uh, when then what the the. the the will to survive. It says under it in kind of a yeah. You really got to kind of strain to see that to that's what that says. And then yeah. uh, what looks like to me the jaws of some kind of dog, but I guess it's supposed to be a lion. I see some whiskers. Yeah, that could be a lion. So he def- like he's definitely put some thought into this. He called up his best Photoshop guy, his best, and he was busy. But he said, "My cousin Gary can do it for you." He did some of those early Cypress Hill records. <laughs> Not uh, the first one and not Black Sunday, but like the one that came after that. Just glancing at the comments, and again, these are from people who uh, apparently, you know, they like Diego Sanchez enough to follow him on Instagram, does not seem to be a popular change. A lot of people kind of upset about this. And they range from either like, you know what, no, this is bullshit, to like kind of trying to talk him out of it, out of it as if they're friends. And he is re- replying... <laughs> Uh, and like, like an interve- we're having a nickname intervention in the comments of Diego Sanchez's Instagram. Page. Yeah, and he, you know, and he seems like he, he's interacting with these people. He's in the comments talking to them. I get the sense that he could be persuaded. If somebody puts forth the right argument, I think maybe we could still talk Diego Sanchez out of this. It's not too late. Uh, I'm just going to point out that Diego Sanchez's Instagram handle is Diego Nightmare Sanchez. <laughs> Diego so. Nightmare Sanchez UFC. So all he needs to happen is to get dropped and go to Bellator and be the Lionheart. And man, then you just got to just throw your phone in the ocean. Start all over again. Shut the whole thing down. Anyway, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you've got questions, comments, concerns that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all those days that we're not recording the podcast. News always breaks. Stuff always happens. It's short. It's informative. We would like to think it's funny. And if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Well, Ben, Tyron Woodley and Stephen Thompson had themselves a crackerjack fight their first time around as the co-main event at UFC 205 
underneath Conor McGregor's lightweight championship victory over Eddie Alvarez. Uh, Tyron Woodley and Steven Thompson ended in a majority draw, which it seemed like for a few seconds Tyron Woodley thought meant they were going to take his title away from him. But we got all that sorted out. And now we're going to do the damn thing again this Saturday at UFC 209. Uh, I guess the thing that surprises me the most is after this awesome fight on a UFC 205 card that did what I believe the kids would call hella buys uh, due to the excitement over McGregor versus Alvarez, uh, doesn't seem like there's a tremendous amount of buzz for Woodley versus Thompson, which surprises me because I thought Stephen Thompson seemed like a challenger that the UFC would want to do something with promotionally, and Tyron Woodley has been a champion thus far who has been divisive, if nothing else. So I'm kind of surprised that we are rolling into uh, UFC 209, and it feels almost like the lightweight co-main event between Habib Nurmagomedov and Tony Ferguson is kind of overshadowing the welterweight title fight here. You think so? Yeah. Okay. I I guess it's hard for me to tell what the general mood is because personally I'm excited for it. I mean, I can see if some people, I think immediate rematch uh, sometimes deadens the enthusiasm a little bit. Even if it was an awesome fight the first time, you just feel like you're kind of ready for something new. It also was a draw, though. So, like, you come up with a draw in a title fight, and I understand that Tyron Woodley kind of wanted to move on. He had some big-name uh, opponents that he wanted to call out, uh, and maybe we did feel like we'd seen everything we needed to see from this pair uh, in terms of an immediate matchup. But when, when you got a title fight and it ends in a draw, it does feel like you need to come back and find some answers, though. Yeah, and it? that's, you know, I was watching the, the countdown video to this one, and it really highlights Tyron Woodley going on TV and discussing other potential big-money matchups that he thought interested him more than uh, doing it again with Stephen Thompson. And Stephen Thompson then pointing out, how can you be happy with a draw? Which I feel like is strong logic on his part. Like, yeah, and, and you know, does really Tyron Woodley no favor as far as uh, his image among MMA fans, like you said, already kind of divisive. Uh, his willingness to, to talk about how he thinks uh, racism might potentially affect the way he's viewed by fans, the very predictable response to that uh, from a lot of people in the fan base. Uh, and then you've got him talking about all these other fights he'd rather do than get in there with mix it up with Stephen Thompson again. Uh, kind of gives Stephen Thompson a little bit of the white hat riding into this one. Uh, I'm curious, though, because you know we, what you saw in this fight was for long stretches, it seemed like Stephen Thompson was able to work his style against Tyron Woodley and pull ahead of him by inches, little, little by little. Um, and yet then there's those big moments where Tyron Woodley reminds you he can still do some major fucking damage. Like he hits you with that right hand, uh, drops Stephen Thompson once in the fourth, and then he gets back up and then get, just gets absolutely smashed by it a few seconds later. And that's when the, you know, he nearly gets put away. And I'm kind of curious to see who gained more of an advantage for a second fight through getting to experience what the other guy brings to the table. Yeah, and you know, one of the strange things about that first fight was that Tyron Woodley chose to strike as much as he did with Stephen Thompson. Uh, and obviously, as you said, he lands those punches, and uh, that's bad news for the other guy who he happens to be fighting. Uh, I wonder if we see Tyron Woodley with much more of a wrestling-focused game plan in this rematch, especially since things got as close you know, things turned out as close as they did at UFC 205. Uh, it seems to me like if you're Tyron Woodley and you really want to hang on to that title, you might want to, uh, you mix it up on the feet a little bit, but, but you know, keep Stephen Thompson guessing a little bit more, keep him more worried about fending off your takedowns than firing off that funky karate man offense that he's got. Uh, and I think that that is probably the... Uh, the recipe for Tyron Woodley to win this fight. And I think it's probably the recipe for this fight to not get rave reviews in the aftermath. I see what you're saying. Well, as you, you recall, he did get him down in that first round and kind of mauled him when he got him down yes, uh, yeah. in that first round. And you, that's when it started to seem like, oh, wait a minute. Stephen Thompson is not going to be able to get back up when Tyron Woodley is on top of him. Uh, but also, Tyron Woodley is going to have kind of a difficult time finishing him there. Uh, and only more so... As the fight wears on, that because he did try the the takedowns later in the fight, just got far less affected with right. them. And so, uh, I think that that's if you're Stephen Thompson, one thing that I think you got to be telling yourself going into this fight is there are going to be some bad moments probably. 
You know, unless you go out there and throw like a, a hook kick that surprises him right off the top of his dome or something, you're probably going to have to be in there for a few rounds with Tyron Woodley, and at some point, it's going to look bad for you. Like either when he gets you down, or you know, maybe he lands one of those big shots again, and you have to struggle through it. But struggle through it, you will. Like I guess that's what you, you're probably telling yourself if you're Stephen Thompson. That and you know, if you're going to play a game dependent on controlling the distance, using your footwork to never get into a spot where it's not exactly where you want to be. You have to do it all the time against a guy like that because all he needs is to land that punch one one time and the whole situation changes. I guess if you're if you're Tyron Woodley though, do you feel like you know what, you gotta go out there and stop this guy to put a stamp on the welterweight championship and maybe turn some of that criticism around? I get the impression from Tyron Woodley, uh, who I think is a likable guy and and obviously a heck of a fighter, I get the impression that he doesn't worry about things like that, and especially like that he doesn't worry about uh, being super impressive in terms of his performance in the cage. Like he's he's one of these guys that comes from a wrestling background that I think has this uh, mindset that a win is a win and he's just, and going out there and getting it done is probably the most important thing. Uh, which frankly is the mindset that I've always found most agreeable in a, in a mixed martial arts fighter. Uh, I don't know that Tyron Woodley is going to come to this thing, uh, feeling like he has to prove something in terms of like being exciting or a knockout artist or anything like that. I think, you, you know, if anything, Woodley comes to this probably doing the old MMA cliche of, I don't need to worry about what he's going to do. He needs to worry about what I'm going to do. And, and, and that we see a more, uh, orthodox Tyron Woodley style approach to this fight. Well, at the same time, he seems frustrated that he's not more of a, uh, popular fighter. I mean, you see him looking for explanations as to why that is, whether you agree with his explanations or not. I mean, it doesn't seem like he is completely comfortable with, how he is perceived and and how he is promoted. He's clearly got some dissatisfaction there. I, I mean, I could see that one of the things you might tell yourself is, let me go in there and smash this karate kid and then see what's up now. Yeah. Like then if you want those big money fights, that seems like a way to do it. And maybe I'm um, unfairly painting Tyron Woodley with this like kind of pragmatic brush, but I just feel like that's the the – the outlook that we get a lot from the, from guys that, that come into this sport from that like collegiate athletic background. I think it's hard to shake that notion of, of, uh, you know, just do whatever it takes to win that you get when you compete in, in, in actual athletics and not necessarily a thing where you're going to try to convince people to pay money to buy, to watch you fight on, on pay per view. But I could be wrong. I don't know. Maybe he's going to come out in this thing, uh, with, and get some karate in his own life, throw in his own damn hook kicks. Now, that would be fun. That would be pretty fun. I think it would be bad for Tyron Woodley, but who knows? <laughs> well, yeah, I, you know, the question of who the UFC would like to see come out with the UFC welterweight title is an interesting one to consider here because I guess my feeling is based on everything we've seen in the past, and by that I mean absolutely everything from UFC executives both pre- and post-sale, seems like there's got to be some people sitting around with their fancy suits on hoping that Stephen Thompson is the guy you get to work with after this. Maybe, yeah. That, I mean, I'm, I was on record a while ago saying it seemed to me like Stephen Thompson had star potential, and obviously he's one of this new generation of MMA fighters that fights like he's in a damn video game. But I haven't like felt that reciprocated a ton from the actual UFC at this point, especially after that first title fight, uh, you know, um, it does, it, and maybe I've just missed it, but it hasn't felt to me like there's been a concerted effort to get Stephen Thompson out there in front of the people, and I don't know why that is. Uh, I do enjoy that in the UFC 205 promo package, they showed him walking around Times Square with his backpack like a high school kid, like an Amish kid on Rumspringer, basically. <laughs> and then in the UFC 209 video package, they do everything they can to kind of make it look like Stephen Thompson lives in the dorms. Right. Like he wakes up and looks out the window and then walks out of his his uh, his room. And it looks like he's sharing an apartment with like five other dudes uh, who are all part of like uh, Christian campus ministries or something like that. <laughs> That's not bad. If, if you have to pick someone here, who do you pick? 
I think Tyron Woodley can get it done. Like I said, if he goes out there and, and, and has a smart fight, has a, uh, you know, plays to his own strengths and doesn't necessarily let Steven Thompson get off in, in his karate game. Like if, if you're Tyron Woodley's coaches, I think you look at that first round and think to yourself, huh, we really had something here. Uh, and maybe if we could impose a little bit more of our wrestling game throughout, it would be an easier fight. I don't know. What do the odds say? Do you know? Yeah. I was just looking at the odds here. Uh, and, to my mild surprise, Stephen Thompson, minus 150, a slight favorite. Interesting. Interesting indeed. You want to do uh, Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll move on to round number two? Sure. Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week? Well, Chad, I know you saw this. Uh, I saw it on Twitter from uh, Kareem Zidane, who says that a, a Russian website has confirmed that uh, Khabib Nurmagomedov's father, uh, along with his second cousin, Frodo, uh, they were denied U.S. visas to come over here uh, for UFC 209, uh, supposedly in Las Vegas. You know it, it's a changing world out there, and we know that the under the new administration, it seems like uh, getting visas, if you're Muslim dudes from a place called Dagestan, might only get tougher. But are you fucking kidding me? Man just wants to come over here, watch his son fight for a UFC interim title, wear some track suits around the Las Vegas Strip, maybe wrestle a bear or two. Just a good American holiday. Can't even get a visa to come over here. You fucking kidding me? You fucking kidding me? I mean, I actually do feel safer, though, that there aren't more Nurmagomedovs running around. Okay, right? that's fair. I'm just out trying to take my bear for a walk. That's right. You never know what might happen. Well, Ben, this week, my are you fucking kidding me, uh, I guess you could say is unverified because we don't know if this is a thing that Fabio Maldonado actually said, but uh, I saw it on Twitter from our guy at Grabaka Hitman, who we've talked Talked about on the show before, singing his praises. Fabio Maldonado fights at EFN 60 this weekend in Tajikistan. Uh, and he, and this appears to be a legitimate, uh, display chefed up by the people over there at EFN to advertise Fabio Maldonado's appearance. Uh, and his quote about the fight is, I do not even know if there is Tajikistan on the world map or not? Question mark. <laughs> That's not a question. Are you fucking kidding me? I mean, I think that's kind of awesome, but at the same time, obviously, are you fucking kidding me worthy? What is going on there? Just the Iron Hillbilly being the Iron Hillbilly, man. I mean, okay, the world map. For you one can thing, take Fabio Maldonado out of the Brazilian countryside, but you can't take the Brazilian countryside out of the Iron Hillbilly Fabio Maldonado. Fair enough. That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Chad, every time I find myself thinking about this lightweight fight between your boy Nurmi and your boy T-Ferg, two things happen. First, I think, holy shit, this is going to be an awesome fight. Start thinking about the different styles they bring, the different kinds of brutal awesomeness they are capable of. And I think, man, this is the best top contender fight that we have seen in a long time. And then the second thing happens, which is I remember, oh shit, it's actually not a top contender fight. Technically, it's a title fight, an interim title fight between these two guys. Now, I've seen it thrown around that we shouldn't get too caught up on the nonsensical nature of throwing an interim title fight here, especially when Dana White is out there saying, well, when Conor McGregor comes back, the first thing he's going to do is fight the winner of this fight. (laughs) (laughs) Which is the kind of thing you say the week of this fight to try to lend more meaning to it. Uh, because, hey, if you throw a title on there, then at least you can get them to go five rounds, which I do want to see them go five rounds if that's what it takes. Uh, and yet it also, it's hard for me to even keep it in the old mind brain, as Chad Dunnis would say, that that is what's happening here. Because to me, I just, it's hard not to think of it as the most awesome contender fight ever. Yeah, and I guess that, that that's kind of what it is, although when you're at such an impasse, seemingly, with your lightweight champion, uh, there's as good a chance that Nurmagomedov or Tony Ferguson gets promoted to regular old lightweight champ at some point, maybe, as there is anything else happening. Uh, and, but I, I agree with you both to say, 
that this is an awesome uh, contender fight and it has been the lightweight contender fight that it seems like people have been salivating for for a while uh, and there were a lot of ins and outs in getting it to come together. Uh, and also that it seems somewhat ridic- ridiculous to just have another interim title fight since it seems like we have one virtually every month in this company. Uh, but at the same time, like when you have a lightweight champion that has not necessarily adhered strictly to the weight class slash championship slash contender system, uh, maybe you got to hedge your bets a little bit since you don't know exactly what's going through the mind of Conor McGregor. True. Uh I, are you trying to tell yourself, like, just emotionally prepare yourself that what you might be witnessing here is the legit UFC lightweight title? Because the weird thing about an interim title fight in a situation like this is they both seem totally deserving. You could put either one of them in a lightweight title fight uh, if you had, like, a champion to put them in against. And if they won, you know, you'd feel like, all right, hey, you came out of there. You found out who the best lightweight was. It's not hard to believe that it's one of these two guys. But when you throw them in there against each other, where neither one of them comes in as champion, and one of them is going to leave with that little asterisk of the interim uh, next to his title, it's not going to feel real. Even though it kind of could, just based on their past accomplishments to this point, and the the difficulty of this fight itself. Maybe I'm going to go the opposite direction and just pretend like this is the lightweight title fight, and whoever wins it is the champion, just to, like have a mental Conor McGregor embargo in my brain, uh, not only to keep at arm's distance the continuing ridiculousness about a potential fight with Floyd Mayweather, but also just to like kind of prepare myself for the idea that I think it's going to be difficult for the UFC to convince Conor McGregor to fight one of these two guys. Like, but this is uh, up to this point in his career, Conor McGregor has admittedly done all the damn things he said he was going to do. And at this point, it is hard to doubt him on any of those fronts. But at the same time, we know he's a guy who likes money. And money is going to be the thing that speaks to him more than anything else. And if you're the UFC and you are just desperately trying to come to terms in a contract negotiation with this guy, I doubt, hey man, come fight Habib Nurmagomedov is going to be the magic words. Or, hey man, come fight Tony Ferguson. Like, it seems like another situation where Conor McGregor could make more money fighting someone else whose name rhymes with George faint Lier. Awesome. Uh, nice. Nicely but, done. But uh, these guys are both super tough. And yeah, I don't know that you want to fight the toughest guy around for less money. And here we get into the problem that the UFC has warned us about that they will point to as one of the ills that plagues boxing is when you have this superstars who become basically a promotion unto themselves, it's hard to get them in the fights that you, the hardcore fans really want to see. Or at least it's hard to get them in those fights in a timely fashion. Like, you can get them in there when they run out of other options, maybe. Uh, but, like you said, trying to tell Conor McGregor, hey, we have one of two super difficult uh, lightweight contenders for you to fight, and neither one of them is anywhere near the star level that you're at, uh, and you could make more money with just something that's kind of borderline silly somewhere else, it's it's hard to to motivate him. Whereas with other UFC champions, and this is like the you know the double-edged sword of the UFC's grip on the sport, is that before with some other champions, they've been able to tell them, look, this is the fight. There's nothing really else to talk about because we call all the shots here. Uh, and we've seen the UFC abuse that power in the past, and we've seen it, you know, kind of be used in some uh, depressing ways. But then, and we've kind of applauded Conor McGregor as he has risen to this position where he gets to call some of his own shots. But now, what happens if he starts calling some of those shots while the rest of us are going? But it would be awesome if you fought Tony Ferguson. Yeah, it's a tough thing to to make peace with or get your mind around. I think, uh, and. You know, one of the reasons that it felt good to see Conor McGregor get the upper hand against the UFC in these negotiations is that the UFC has, you know, used that argument that that this would happen to the sport uh, if fighters were, you know, had the upper hand, if fighters had the most uh, negotiating power. They've used that argument to keep fighter pay low as one of the many arguments that they use to to keep the fighter payroll maybe lower than it should be. Uh, and so 
the, it's hard to side with the UFC in that argument just for that reason. But at the same time, uh, it does short circuit a lot of the things that I think fans like about this sport to have, you know, one star who's going to dictate everything that he wants to do. Uh, you know, and, and, um, I feel like I would be more willing to, to like accept that new reality if I thought everybody was getting paid a lot of money. Uh, but it's, it's, you know, when Conor McGregor's the only guy getting paid millions and millions of dollars to have a fight, uh, it's easier for me to, to fall back on the idea that, that, uh, you know, the, the, uh, more rigid divisional system, uh, had a lot of positive things about it. Especially for fans, I think, you know, we've always said that, uh, the strong centralized force of the UFC has been, has been good for, for fans and that, it, you know, more often than not, you get to see the fight that you want to see. Uh, but for a lot of different reasons, I feel like it's also kind of refreshing to see a guy like Conor McGregor have the, the promotional power that he has. So personally, I'm split on it. I don't know how I feel, uh, except that it feels awesome to, the idea of Conor McGregor fighting any one of these dudes feels kind of awesome to me, and hopefully we get to see it. Yeah, and you know that if Nurmagomedov wins, you will see an epic call-out along the lines of, Ireland, give me your chicken. Yes, absolutely. What are the odds on this one? You still got that open? I mean, this is a fight where I could see, you know, just as easily imagine uh, Nurmagomedov wrestling away a decision or Tony Ferguson doing some wild... I just don't give a shit striking thing where he ends up winning by knockout. Odds uh, have Nurmi as a two-to-one favorite. Wow, that's more lopsided than I would have thought. Me too. I thought maybe closer to a pick'em. Well, especially because I thought that in the last fight uh, against uh, Michael Johnson, was it? I thought you saw some vulnerabilities in Nurmi's stand-up. You know, he and even uh, you know, I think before that you've seen some instances where. While that that game he has where he just brings that pressure on you unrelentingly, uh, there are times where it kind of seems to translate to a lack of appropriate concern for uh, his opponent's offense. And that could maybe backfire against you against a guy like Tony Ferguson. But then again, Tony Ferguson will fuck around and do some wild stuff that will at times get him taken down in situations, at least in the past, in situations where... You know, maybe he he made it a little too easy for a guy who was takedown minded. Yeah, I mean, I think with Nurmagomedov, one of the reasons that he is popular is that he has that kind of devil may care attitude about his fighting style. Sometimes he overextends on his feet, he gets reckless. And Tony Ferguson is exactly the kind of guy who could take advantage of that. But like you said, Nurmag or Ferguson at times uh, goes out there and just you know barrel rolls all the way across the cage, and and you could see him getting into some trouble with a guy who's uh, grappling and, and especially top control is as, as suffocating as Nurmagomedov's can be. If only we could do another podcast next week after the fight had happened, then we could talk about what it would be like. How about that? Uh, how about if I set the over-under on barrel rolls for uh, T. Fergie in this fight here at three? Are you taking over or under? I would take the under, I think. I would feel like 1.5 would be... Safer. You're going to see a, a .5 barrel roll, you think, maybe? Well, that's how those things work. Okay. Know? All right. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Well, Ben, am I wrong to think that we have finally reached UFC heavyweight perfection in a world where a 36-year-old version of Alistair Overeem fights a 42-year-old version of Mark Hunt, and that these two dudes might just go out there, kind of like at the end of Rocky III, uh, where Apollo Creed and uh, and Rocky are going to fight, uh, and they go to the training room, and the, the tape freezes just as they're going to punch each other and the credits roll and we hear the soundtrack. Could that happen to Alistair Overman and Mark Hunt? Like they go out there and the first punch that they throw, they both just turn into pure energy and vanish because this is heavyweight Xanadu. Well, you'll notice that they are scheduled for the first fight of the pay-per-view, which tells you something about the UFC's expectations. 
Uh, and, or, you know, maybe it tells you that the UFC is willing to gamble that we're not going to see the other kind of heavyweight fight in this one, which I think, given what we know about each man here, is probably a pretty good bet. This is the UFC looking at both these guys and saying, look, you're both going out there, and one of you is not coming back. It's, we're, we're hoping for two minutes, a cloud of dust, and a lot of blood in this one, and you're probably going to get it, too. Uh, Alistair Overeem seemed like a lost cause for a while back in 2003-2014 uh, when he first came to the UFC. Uh, he went 1-3, and three, lost to Travis Brown, lost to Antonio Silva, lost to Ben Rothwell. The only guy he beat in that stretch was Frank Mir. Uh, since then, he had kind of turned it around and won four in a row, leading to the UFC 203 heavyweight title fight he got against Stipe Miocic. Of course, he ended up losing that one uh, by KO right near the end of the first round. Uh, I don't know what to think of Alistair Overeem at this point, um, except to think we already wrote him off once and then he put it back together and fought for the title and lost and now seems to just kind of be hanging around having fights against guys like Mark Hunt. Uh, I guess that that stretch from 2013 to 2014 still makes me feel uh, worried about his ability to absorb punches at the heavyweight level and yeah mark, mark hunt, hunt probably won't land any hard punches on him or mark anything hunt right? seems like the kind of guy where that could be a detriment i would say and mark hunt seems like the kind of guy who you are not going to easily knock out yourself before he has a chance to land a punch or two on your head uh the thing you forgot to mention here about that uh writing alistair over him off period was that it followed a suspension for a failed drug test in Las Vegas. Remember when he first came and he had that fight with Brock Lesnar um, and there were you know, a lot of questions about whether he had run from a drug test when the Nevada Commission had come to, to talk to him. Uh, some, some what's really going on situations seemed to be happening there. Uh, then he fails a drug test, uh, is suspended, does the old, old, my doctor put it in my uh, joint ointment, I had no idea kind of thing. Uh, and when he comes back, noticeably softer, um, that's when he has some of this rough period. But then it seems like, you know, he, he got through that one way or another, uh, strung together that, that series of four wins, uh, and was looking, you know, pretty good against Stipe until he got knocked out. So again, it seems like you're dealing with on some level, the old heavyweight flip of the coin and any of these fights. However, when you go up against a guy like Mark Hunt in this situation, it's not like you're just going to wow him with kickboxing. It's not like you're just going to steamroll him if you're Alistair Overeem at this point. Uh, if you have to stand there and trade punches with him and you're Alistair Overeem and you've shown off a suspect chin that is likely not getting any better as you age into your, your mid to late 30s, it seems like kind of a recipe for Mark Hunt to get back in the win column to me. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Mark Hunt also comes into this thing on the heels of... A weird time, I guess you would say. We haven't seen him in the cage since he lost to Brock Lesnar at UFC 200 last July. And obviously uh, that fight started out as a unanimous decision for Lesnar, uh, but got overturned after he violated the UFC's drug policy, turned into a no contest, uh, which led to some strange times for Mark Hunt at the UFC. Uh, Mark Hunt threatened a lawsuit. Sounded and He made it sound very much like he wouldn't be back. Or like he wouldn't uh, fight in the UFC in, unless he could uh, receive some assurances that he wouldn't uh, fight against somebody who was abusing PEDs again. Uh, which makes Alistair Overeem kind of an ironic opponent for him here. Because as you mentioned, Alistair Overeem is already uh, failed drug test deep in his UFC career. And, and was dogged for years by accusations when he went from being a kind of a beanpole light heavyweight to being an action figure heavyweight in Japan of all places. Uh, yeah, but so I mean, this is a, this is a weird opponent for Mark Hunt at this time in his career. Although uh, it seems like he's gotten some assurances that that Overeem won't test positive, and if he does, I think Alice, or uh, Mark Hunt gets some of his money. Is how this thing works. Like he's got some, that's what he wanted, right? Is that? But they, I don't know if that's what he got. Did they cave to that or no? Because I think what he wanted was not not some of his money. For a while there, he was talking about give me all of his money uh, if he fails a drug test, and I, I'm sure. To a lot of people, at this point, an Alistair Overeem lack of drug test failure will not necessarily convince them that he is fighting clean. Like, it's 
hard to prove a negative in that sense. You know, some people are just going to look at him and be like, all right, so you didn't catch him this time. Uh, that doesn't really tell me anything. And I'm sure if Mark Hunt goes out there and loses, uh, we might hear him bring that, that up in an interview. So who knows there? But I, I do wonder if say Mark Hunt goes out there and he knocks out Alistair Overeem, then he's in a situation where, okay, hey, he fought on a UFC pay-per-view, opened the card up, uh, knocked out Alistair Overeem. Things are looking sunny again in Mark Hunt's life. Uh, does he change his perspective on this whole ongoing situation with the UFC? Uh, probably not, right? Like, I mean, well, he's I still going to have... hope not. Yeah, he's still going to have some hard feelings, I think, about the Brock Lesnar thing. I don't know that just going out there and, and putting one of those big ham hocks on Alistair Overeem's chin is going to make him forgive and forget everything. Uh, but at the same time, like, one of the things that makes this like almost the perfect UFC heavyweight fight above and beyond all of the weirdness that we just talked about is that, you know, aside from the fact that there are always tremendous physical stakes involved when two heavyweight MMA fighters get in there and start punching each other in the face, it's hard to say that there are any stakes above and beyond that in this fight because either guy wins, either guy loses, either guy could retire immediately after that, or either guy could stick around for five more years and continue to... Uh, get put into a bag and shaken up and dumped out with any other random assortment of UFC aging heavyweights. It's not as though a tremendous amount is on the line in this fight, at least as it pertains to like the structure of the UFC. Moreover, just the structure of everyone's brains that are on the line. Right. I mean, it is it is weird to fight for, to go to work for somebody who you currently are in court accusing them of a federal conspiracy, right? That's That doesn't happen that often, uh, even in this business. Uh, maybe if you're Alistair Overy, maybe you try to spin that to your favor. Like, hey, you go out there and you just remind the USC, I just, I just want to remind you, I'm not suing you right now. I'm going to go out here and just be a, a good little soldier. Not even going to try to bring you up on any kind of RICO accusation uh, in court. Isn't that nice of me? Anyway, remember that if Mark Hunt knocks me into the Darklands. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I mean, seems like a, a weird thing to take credit for, but why not? Why <laughs> you got to just grasp onto whatever you got. All right. Well, anyway, you want to do uh, Just Saying Stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this week? Sure. Ben, what is your Just Saying Stuff? Well, Chad, I don't know if you heard that Cody Fister plans to launch his own MMA promotion. I I heard I saw something about it. I saw the headline. I have to admit I didn't investigate much further than that. Well, yeah, he's apparently says he's got some business partners who are gonna uh, help him put together an MMA promotion. He does not have a name for this MMA promotion yet. Uh, although when your name is Fister uh, and you're gonna put on a fight promotion, there are a lot of options that you could go with. Um, but where it gets interesting is where. He says that he thinks or he hopes to one day make it a rival for the UFC in Bellator. Here's a quote. Hopefully, I can turn it into something that will be worth a lot financially, but I also feel I'll be a good matchmaker. I know how to take care of the fighters. I'm going to pay them what they're worth. Having been on the other side, I think I'll do things a little differently. I'm just saying, you have already given me reason to doubt my investment in fist fights by Cody Fister. One of the things that, just that's important is to set achievable goals. So I'm glad Cody Fister has that part down. And as it says something about this sport, that the minute I hear somebody say he's going to be a big-time promoter and it's going to be a huge financial success and also he's going to pay the fighters what they're worth, I think one of these things does not go with all the other things. Ben, Liam McGeary won his fight against TBA uh, at Bellator on Friday. They ran through so many opponents for McGeary that I'm not 100% sure who they ended up with. The Bear of Baron on Furnace. Oh, that guy? Is he? Did he make it healthy to the fight? I, I, I believe that uh, Brett McDermott is who you're referring to. The Bear of Baron on Furnace. And yes, he made it upright and, and conscious into that thing. So that's a big win, frankly, for Liam McGeary. In any case... Uh, I was drawn to this story by the MMA junkie Stephen Morocco about McGeary's previous title loss to Phil Davis, wherein Liam McGeary blames his loss to Phil Davis on being exhausted during their fight because he said he had been training four times a day to get ready for Phil Davis. Here's his quote 
I was like, God, I'm coming up against Phil Davis. He's a wrestler. So I was trying to do everything all in the same day. I'd do jujitsu, and then I would go do striking, and then I would do wrestling, and then I'd fit in strength and condition conditioning afterward. So this week, I guess I'm just saying, we need to make sure that Liam McGeary never fights anybody really, really good, just out of fear that he will absolutely work himself to death during the training uh, for that fight. Can you imagine how many times a day Liam McGeary might have to train if he was going to fight somebody like John Jones? Oh, God. We just... We'd have to save him from himself. Yeah, he'd never stop trading. I'm just saying. Just saying. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's Co-Main Event Podcast. We will be back next week to break down all the stuff that happens at UFC 209 and look forward to that next UFC Fight Night event where Vitor Belfort takes on Kelvin Gastelum. Uh, as for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. You think you might have been doing the thing where you're like, yeah, no, I worked out four times today, and really what you're counting is like when you got out of bed and you stretched. Like, that was one. So you're saying that uh, Liam McGeary's four times a day might be like Hicks and Gracie's 500 and 0? You shovel the driveway, get, get the snow off the driveway, there's two. I counted that as a workout today, going out there and getting my walk shovel. I'm 1 and 0 already today. <laughs> so what else you got planned is the next question. Well, now we're done recording the show, so I'm going to go ahead and play myself too.